Welcome to Parenthood Pals. I'm Caleb Hoyer. And I'm Melissa Fight Johnson. And today I'm so happy to have another old friend join us, another friend who I talked about the show with at NYU, Danielle Gimbel. Hi! Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to meet you. It's so good to see you. We haven't seen each other in person in like literal years. Yeah. Which is a shame. And we should yes. remedy that. <laughs> Definitely. You know, I mentioned that we would talk about parenthood at NYU, and yet I more remember talking about books with you at NYU. Yeah. I knew that you watched Parenthood, but Tell me what your history with the show Parenthood actually is. I started watching in college and I loved it. I think I watched almost all of it probably in real time. I don't think I started maybe right at the beginning, but like once I started, I was definitely on board. I loved the show. I have not watched it since then. And I actually never finished it. Oh. I stopped. I don't want to give any spoilers about what can, happens in the future, but there was a point in the final season that was like very reminiscent of some stuff that was going on in my personal life. Oh. And I was like, I think I need to stop. I just don't think I can handle this right now. And I just never picked it back up. Like once, once that was all sort of resolved. So I never finished the series. (laughs) Do you think you ever will? Or do you think, no, you're like, yeah, you know, rewatching this episode, I'm like, maybe I should go rewatch the whole show (laughs) and do a side by side with your podcast, obviously. Uh, Well, that sounds like a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. Very nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I think I might, but I think if I finish it, I would want to do a complete rewatch to really dive back in. Yeah. Well, you know, I recommend it because I would have said my memory of the show was great. And then doing this podcast, I'm like, well, I forgot so many things. Like, and so, yeah. 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 I find it funny because I actually feel like my memory of it is not that great. But as soon as I started watching this episode, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, everything was, like, right back oh, I love how that. I remembered it. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm doing things all out of order because I feel like it's been a long time since we've had a new guest. <laughs> so we got your parenthood history. Where are you joining us from today? I am in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, Lovely. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And then can you tell us about Team Gimbal? Yeah, so I am an only child. I grew up with my mom and my dad. And uh, we had, at the most, four dogs. We always had a bunch of dogs around. Yeah, I grew up sort of in the woods in Northern California. And um, we always just had a bunch of dogs. So that was my family growing up, my, like, close family. Uh, My grandparents and my aunt also lived in the town I'm from. So I always had them around, but it was just me uh, as a kid growing up. And I have some cousins, but not a ton. So yeah, I definitely was an only child. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And now I live in Brooklyn with my boyfriend and we also have a dog. So that's, you know, my living family and my, my parents are both still alive. So yeah, that that's where I am. And unless I'm wrong, I believe you live the closest to Berkeley or grew up the closest to Berkeley of any guests that we've had on. Yeah, it was about three, three and a half hours away from where I grew up. So uh, probably (laughs) unless you have anybody from San Francisco on. on, Yeah, I'm pretty. I don't think we ever have had anyone on. No. Did you go to the Bay Area often? Like you've been to Berkeley, I'm assuming, you know. I actually don't know if I have been to Berkeley. My dad went to college at UC Berkeley for music and I applied there and got into college there, but I 
wasn't really applying for music and I wanted to go to school for music and musical theater and got into NYU for that. So that was definitely like my first choice. But if I hadn't gotten into NYU, I always say that like, I probably would have gone to Berkeley for at least a year while I like figured it out. But we would go to San Francisco once a year ish to like go see shows or go like shopping, like holiday shopping and stuff. Cause it is the biggest, like big city close to me. Yeah. I love that. All right. Well, it's so great to have you here. And even though it's not a Jody Pico book, I'm sure we'll have lots to say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, Melissa. Melissa was the person who introduced me to Jody Pico, the author. Oh yeah. And then I ended up reading tons of her books, and that is someone I really remember always talking yeah. about. Like always. Oh, which one are you reading now, Danielle? Yeah, I have yeah. A deep dives. Yeah, Caleb, maybe we should yeah. go see her musical. <gasps> we should. Between the lines, currently running yeah. at second stage. <laughs> that all right let's dive in to parenthood season five episode 14 you've got mold it was written by <laughs> gina fattori directed by ken whittingham it originally aired on january 23rd 2014 and here's the tv guide synopsis sarah begins a new project with hank christina becomes a community counselor jasmine is upset when crosby discovers mold in his house and julia and joel decide to be straightforward with sydney and victor I want to tell you both about the DVD synopsis for this episode, just because I found something a little peculiar. So here's You've Got Mold as summarized on the season five DVD. Joel and Julia must face their children while Crosby and Diane have a terrible visitor. What? (laughs) Diane. Who's Diane? (laughs) What is that? And I like had to read it so many times. Like, am I hallucinating? Crosby and <laughs> Diane. That's so <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. So anyway, now to the actual episode. <laughs> it begins with Max in his classroom. And I, <laughs> the first thing I took note of was like, ooh, I can hear Melissa's voice when watching that first classroom scene. Uh, yeah. What? So Melissa, please grade the teacher. <laughs> Oh my God, that teacher sucks. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean a D at best. I, (laughs) I wrote generous. Yeah, thank you. I wrote (laughs) in my notes that at least this teacher wasn't just like doing trivia questions and Max was taking over it. It was a lecture-based class, and so Max, I guess, was technically interrupting. But (sighs) sending him to the library is horrific like I mean I just like I totally understood why Adam and Christina were so upset by that that is that is not okay like that's that it sends such a terrible message like okay he's just a problem let's just get rid of him I'm like you know and at this point I just started to wonder like I know that Max I don't think he's technically tested as gifted because they had that whole episode in season one where Sydney did and that was the thing. But I'm like, he's got to be gifted, right? I was like, is there no resource room where he could work instead of the library at, at least? You know, I mean, I think ideally he would be in the classroom, but I thought just sending him off to be by himself doing whatever it is he wants to do unsupervised that sucks. You know, I just thought there's, there's nothing else. This teacher, I understand that he's got all these other students, but it's just not acceptable. So now do you find it believably horrible 
Or is it like, unbe- like, this is so bad, I can't imagine any teacher would do this. What makes me really sad is I totally believe it. Yeah, I think there, okay. are, I think there are teachers who would do that. I just think it's a terrible strategy. It's not even a strategy. <laughs> like, calling it a strategy is... Well, now I can't say the word strategy. I like... <laughs> Strategery. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just, no. And, and I actually really thought that was probably a good move on their part, um, having the teacher do something like that. Because in the past, Daniel, I don't know how well you remember, like, the whole Victor getting, like, moved to to fourth grade. I thought Mm -hmm. none of that even felt realistic to Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Like, that they were talking about it in the middle of the school year instead of, like, at the end of the previous year, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, this isn't even believable. But sadly, this one was to me. Yeah. So I was a little surprised in the scene with Mr. Wyman that Max could read the cue from the teacher to go to the library. Because he says, library? Like, he, but the teacher doesn't even say it. That's a good point. Max just reads the cue. But Max could not read the cue that his incessant sharing of fun facts <laughs> is not being well received. I'm like, that's a little yeah, bizarre to me. That's funny because I sort of maybe assumed that this was not the first time we'd seen this scenario play out. But even if it was, then you would think that Max would know, oh, this thing is going to get me sent to the library. But yeah. the way he said library, it was like, oh, this has happened before in class. Do you yeah. think that he actually wants to be sent to the library? Like That's exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah. He's learned that this works. So, yeah. yeah. I did sort of get that vibe. <laughs> he's like, well, then I can do my math over. And I would buy that too. Because yeah. I don't think he's being stimulated, no. clearly. Like, And so, like, why would he want to really be in class either? Yeah. Boy. Interesting. I just wish that they would have discussion-based classes or something. Like, on this show, it just seems like they present school, public school, as like, super boring all the time and I'm like that's just giving us a really bad bad look yeah well I found the meeting that they have with Mr. Wyman and the principal really frustrating because while I am not a teacher I didn't even find it believable Max is a very bright student but his distractions make it hard for me to teach the other kids and I find he does really well working independently working independently is that what you're calling it Mr. Braverman I'm doing my best but I have 29 kids in that class. Okay, we get that you have 29 kids in your class, but what you're not realizing is that Max is one of them. I mean, this is ridiculous. I filled Principal Radford in on the situation. He thought it'd be best if he joined us. Oh, good, so we can talk to you about how you've decided to let him work independently in the library. We've been in these seats a lot this year, haven't we? Yes, yes, we have. No, I understand your frustration. No, I don't think you do, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting in these seats again. Mr. Braverman, you're absolutely right. Mr. Wyman should have contacted you when the problem started, and for that, I apologize. Thank you. But here's the bottom line. Max has trouble learning in a mainstream classroom environment. Mr. Wyman has trouble teaching when Max is there. Right now, no one is winning. I know the solution is not ideal, but for now, the best we can do is tell you that when Max has a tough or disruptive day, he'll be sent to the library to work on his own. I think that's a good solution for everyone. I disagree. I think that he should be in the classroom with his peers. There has to be another solution. Can he at least be transferred to another class? We will look into that. However, at this time, I can assure you, we are utilizing all of our resources to serve Max. So what, that's it? That's what you're gonna do, that's it? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's a tough situation, and we are doing our best. Well, I think that your best is unacceptable. I really do. I just had so many questions from that scene, like, why doesn't Max have a behavioral aid to help him work on not monopolizing the discussion during class? Why doesn't he have a para or someone similar in his classes with him? 
Why is he being sent to the library all by himself rather than a resource room or special ed center or something with some supervision and some other students? Why have we never seen an IEP meeting about him? Like we saw, this is the first episode we've ever even heard that term, I believe. I think you're and right. And Christina's saying, oh, we did that with Max all the time. I'm like, well, we never talked about it or <laughs> saw it. I just felt like there's so many gaps in the story that what's left over mm -hmm. couldn't help but feel contrived to me. It's yeah. like, well, here's where we want Max to be, so we're just going to make it be where he is, even though we haven't been preparing it much. That's a really good point. I think you're totally right. I mean, both of Julia and Joel's kids should probably have IEPs. You know, Sydney is gifted, and, and I, I kept thinking, well, if they're going to hold Victor back, they should have tried other things and had an IEP meetings and whatever. We just never saw it frustrating. You're totally right. Now I'm frustrated that our first IEP meeting is for a complete stranger. She seems lovely, Kiara. Yeah. <laughs> like, we don't know her. Well, and can you, it's individualized education plan? Is that what it stands for? I'm 99% sure that's what it stands for. <laughs> well, here's why we I ask. because so I, many, um, what are they called? Uh, acronyms? Yes, thank you. They drive me crazy. And so, yeah. Because anyway. I had an IEP when I was in school but I didn't even know what it meant mm. or what it got me or I, I never went to a meeting about it. Yeah. Or, that was for gifted, I believe, mm. why I had that. All I ever knew about it is that it allowed me to transfer out of a class into another one in high school well past the date at which they mm. said you couldn't do that yeah. because I hated the teacher. <laughs> um, and I think she hated me too. And I was like, let's see other people <laughs> uh, so, but the what is the purpose of an IEP well it's basically just I think to make sure that students who do have you know specialized needs get accommodations you know one way or another for whatever their particular situation is I don't know as much about it as like my husband who's a special education teacher so he like writes them and is very very familiar with them general education teachers like me we more like sometimes sign off on them. We're required to like read them for students who have them. Uh, every once in a while, we'll attend a meeting because there's supposed to be at least one classroom teacher in the meeting. So that's my particular like experience with them. It's funny, for the first time, I'm wondering, would this happen in Berkeley? <laughs> I don't know anything about Berkeley, but it seems like a community in which education would be very highly valued mm -hmm. and like if this show were set in the middle of the country mm -hmm. not to disparage the middle of the country because it sounds like i mean where you are melissa lawrence which is not necessarily typical of the state that it's in but it sounds like you guys have way more resources than it appears that max does yeah. But if this were in some community that just didn't value education that much, I might buy it more. But I'm like, you're in this university town that's super progressive and no one is helping this spe these special needs kids? I, I didn't really buy that very much. Like during the IEP meeting that we attended, you know, <laughs> I thought it was so bizarre what the principal, what he said about like, not having paras at the high school level. I'm like, well, that's just not true. <laughs> like, I mean, at least at either school I've been at. I, I, I remember paras for other students when I was in high school. Absolutely. I do buy that 
it would be not possible like financially for every kid who needed special attention to like have their own personalized para, which is I think what she was requesting. I'm like, well, there's no money for that. You know, I was like, that would be ideal. But I, I, at least the schools I've worked at budgets have been a concern and I can't imagine just somebody having like their own personal para walking with them from class to class. But usually you put kids who have similar, you know, needs in maybe the same English class or the same math class. And then there's a para for those students in that class. There is para support for like certain classes. And I thought, is that not possible? You know, I just, I thought what they were offering was bonkers. I'm like, oh, they'll just do an extra check-in. I don't even know what language you're speaking. I don't think I've ever heard them say a check-in at an IEP That was meeting. so confusing to me. I Just in general, like the extra check-in, like what does that accomplish? I don't understand how that is helpful. It was very unclear. Yeah. And it was daily. Like they do two a day and they're like, well, we're going to do three. I was like, is that just you asking what's going on? Yeah. Like, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I think my frustration is it becomes pretty clear that like no one in the education field works on this show. And so it's like, (laughs) I I imagine it's a bunch of people remembering school sometimes incorrectly. Like, well, I feel like, I mean, even the way that she called, does she use the term like, paraprofessional aid or something like it was a foreign concept like we were on like a hospital show and they're trying to pronounce these strange (laughs) words that they're not familiar with I'm like you would just say a para like and you would probably know that term like anyway or paraeducator maybe but a paraprofessional aid I was like I don't know it just the whole thing felt like they were trying to approximate what being in a school setting was like but yeah and I feel like the problem they're trying to illustrate is a believable problem which is there are schools and systems set up for people of various levels of need. And what happens if your student is in the cracks, too high functioning to go to the school for kids with severe autism, like Noel Lessing, but not socially adept enough to maybe be in a mainstream environment totally. without major hiccups. And so I, I sympathize with that. I just feel like in their depiction, they're getting so much else kind of off that it's hard to relate to the central conflict. I have a fun fact for everyone. (laughs) We'll see how fun it is. Kiara's mother is played by Tina Holmes, who played Maggie Sibley on Six Feet Under. On that show, Nate, who was Peter Krause, confided in her that he was concerned his child might be born with special needs. Whoa. And then he cheated on his girlfriend with her. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only part I remembered. I didn't remember that, which is super interesting. But I did remember that they were romantically involved. And I was like, whoa, I wonder if they're friends now. And that's how she, you know, ended up on this show. I also found Christina hilarious in this short little scene with Adam. Listen, I know you've been dealing with this IEP stuff, but can you handle a little more potentially bad news? Are you kidding? What do you mean? Max's history teacher has been sending him to the library every day during class. Wait, I'm sorry, what? I just found out from Max the details I got were vague, but from what I can tell, this Mr. Wyman, I think, just doesn't want to deal with him. He has to deal with him. He can't just send him to the library. Educationally advocate that situation. No, that is ridiculous. He can't do that. What is happening this year? Advocate his ass. I'm going to advocate his ass. Yeah. What is his name? Mr. Wyman. Mr. Wyman. Guess what? I want you to set a meeting with him. I did already. Do it. We're having a meeting with him tomorrow. We're going to talk to Mr. Mr. Wyman. It's Mr. Wyman. Whatever. Don't. I'm going to break him. Please don't do this to me. (laughs) What? What? 
What is Adam's last line? Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. I don't know. About, I don't, I don't know. She calls but, him Hyman and then says she's going to break him. I mean, that's kind of where my mind went. Like, that's very, like lewd for Christina but who knows maybe she's fired up I did write I feel like Christina showed more fire in that scene than in the entirety of her campaign (laughs) for mayor and I like that quality in her you know I this episode I was like Monica Carter is just so amazing (laughs) like I and, and that was one of the things where I was drawn like right back in I was like Wow, she is so good. <laughs> yeah. um, and this was one of those moments. She's just like, yeah, firing off and like, but funny and witty and just very good, very good actress and good writing, I think, for Christina. Yeah. yeah. I thought she was funny in this last little scene as well, which kicks off, in my opinion, one of the most ridiculous storylines <laughs> on Parenthood. I'm very frustrated. You know, I hate to see Max get shuffled around all the time like this. Where do you put a kid who doesn't belong anywhere? I don't know. It's the system. I mean, we're stuck with the system. As far as I'm concerned, the only way to get a school for him is if we start one ourselves. <laughs> what are you doing? Nothing. I'm not doing anything. Christina, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything. I just, I just hold on for a second. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to check something out. Not the way you How to start nothing. a school? I'm not doing that. <laughs> you st- That's crazy. It's so insane. It's insane. But it isn't, is it? I think that this looks like a lot of bureaucratic red tape and a whole lot of work. I know, but how hard can it be? I mean, think about it. You started a a studio, a recording studio, right? Yes, that was not easy. You ran for mayor, which was also not easy. Not easy, but I mean... I guess what do we need? Just a building and some teachers. And maybe a hot lunch program. How hard can that be? That's it. Anybody could do this. This is crazy. You can do it. I can. We can't. You can't. I, I actually, it did make me think of a legit question, which is, what's the line between being an advocate for people who need an advocate and who have been forgotten about or fallen through the cracks and being entitled and just thinking that, well, whatever I want, I'm entitled to have. And if no one will give it to me, I'll just take it, <laughs> which it kind of feels like I'd be like it. While it is probably a very generous thing if they're going to start a school for special needs children, it feels like it's being born out of like extreme privilege. Like, yes, well, I'll just start my own school. Forget you all. (laughs) But maybe I'm being too harsh on them. I didn't immediately have that thought, but I do wonder if like after watching their sort of journey up until now, if just like character development is that like maybe that's one of the reasons why you went there because it does feel on brand for them yeah totally (laughs) well just if no one else will cater to me i'll which in some ways is like a great attitude because at least she's not you know like setting up vigil outside the principal's office just protesting him all day long okay great you want something done do it yourself but this also, maybe it's also rooted in, I just find the problem unbelievable. I'm like, well, you have not exhausted your resources yeah. as far as I'm concerned. So that you're jumping to this just feels like outlandish. <laughs> For the next step to be, yeah, we'll just start our own school. It's, it's quite a leap, I think. <laughs> yeah. By next year when our son will be yeah, in high school. In high school. 
That's yeah. It takes no time at all. No, it's super easy. How hard can it be? Yeah. The, the, how hard can it be was the part. And that's when I almost get borderline offended, like at this portrayal of public school, which I have, you know, poured my whole self into as a public school teacher. But, you know, I do admit that there are, it's, it's not a perfect system and they are right to call out the system. And I guess I, I don't know. Part of me is like, we can't do anything to make the system better. Is there, is there no way to help or work together? You know, are we just, they're just enemies with the school and all right, fine, we'll strike out on our own. And then I'm also like, well, you're not experts at this. And I think that really goes to that. If you can't do the teach, you know, that expression, Those who can't do teach. I yeah. hate that expression. It really mm-hmm. makes me so sick. And I'm like, really the issue is their son has a terrible teacher, like, you know, and, um, unfortunately that happens, but there are, you know, usually amazing teachers as well. And, and I thought, well, they did get him moved to a different class. Maybe go meet with that person and talk about the concerns with the last teacher and, and make sure this is a better situation. I don't know. And then I also like just started wondering things like, okay, so they, they started mainstreaming Max and they took him out of footpath. I'm like, what happened to Footpath? Like that was like the perfect school for Max. Does it not go up to high school? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I guess I just was like, huh. And then I'm also like, yeah, okay. So Gabby was his behavioral aid and then they just never hired anyone ever again. I'm like, they could also work with Max on things like don't interrupt the yeah. entire yeah. class. I, because, I don't know. Cause it doesn't seem like it's a learning issue. It's a social issue and they're not really working with him anymore sorry that was a whole thing but (laughs) those are my thoughts no I had that thought too and like I just feel like I remember they would talk to Max about stuff like that in other scenarios be like hey this is like not quite the appropriate response here and like maybe he wouldn't do it but at least he'd be like oh right like that is one of those times yeah and there was like not even a conversation with Max also like what does Max want yeah. Good question. That's a great question. <laughs> Although maybe Max wants to just go to the library. Yeah. <laughs> well, so then maybe that's okay. I don't know. <laughs> Max, what do you want? I want for you to start a whole school just for me. <laughs> okay. You heard him. I'm doing it. Well, you know, speaking of which. Let's Google it. I mean, I wondered a little bit why that was their thought instead of pulling Max and homeschooling just him, which I think a lot of people do when Mm -hmm. their child's needs aren't being met. And so I thought, and that seems much more realistic, like, okay, for next year, let's figure this out. Christine is a stay at home mom anyway. Like, you know, like we've got one parent home. Okay, let's figure out what I would need to do to homeschool. Although if his problems are social, doesn't that just compound them? Probably. But it's more realistic than starting a whole school. But okay. My cousin was homeschooled. And when they got to high school, they had in-person classes also Mm. for the social aspect of it. So I think you could have done a hybrid maybe where like some stuff you do at home and some stuff you want to class for. And maybe there are classes where Max really does thrive in person and somewhere it doesn't it could have like I think that there are realistic scenarios like that and solutions yeah and you know even you saying that it just drives home that I think what's really bothering me is that in general I suspect educators want to help all the students that they have yeah and will go to great lengths to do that 
but in the depiction we are shown, yeah. it seems like they're only willing to do the bare minimum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it rather than let's explore this hybrid option. Can you homeschool and be in person class? Can you just homeschool? Could you go? Is there a aide who could help? Yeah. They don't seem to be really exploring any of those. It's like, well, either it's the library or you guys just get over it. <laughs> yeah. There was not a lot of creative problem solving no. in, yeah. in this episode. No, it was very frustrating. And I thought, you know, the one positive representation of public school teaching we've seen is through Jason Ritter's character, Mark, you know? Um, and and I was like, and it's only because I think they wanted him to seem like an appealing dating choice for a different character on the show, for Sarah. And I'm like, boy, this Mr. Wyman would be a terrible boyfriend for anyone, I think. I'm just not willing to work, you know? I don't know. I just thought... If they're understanding what it takes enough to make a really realistic, I mean, I think that Jason Ritter's portrayal was one of the most realistic public school teachers I've ever seen. And everything he did was great. And it was just little things, but you know, he was engaging in the classroom. He went the extra mile to tutor people for SATs and stuff. I'm like, that's what most teachers I work with are like. And so, yeah, I think what really frustrates me is this idea that Adam and Christina are going to be like saviors and that they know more than people who are in the field who have been working for decades, presumably. And I, I just, it's a its a stereotype that I really hate, that teachers are lazy, they do it for the summers off, et cetera, et cetera. I just, ugh. And so I think maybe that's what left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Because I don't, yeah. I mean, it, they should be able to help their kid, obviously. I, I do agree with that, but yeah. And the privilege, yeah, what, what are people who are poor supposed to do? Like, what, what are people who, and then they're like, well, you ran for mayor. Oh, you started a recording studio. I'm like, none of these things are realistic. So like, you're acting like these are reasons we can do it. Well, let's shift to Sarah in this episode and her job and the various men surrounding her job. My first question is about her scene with Carl. Hank thinks we're going to be safer in the in the studio. Wait, Hank says? Why? What's Hank have to do with it? Well, I hired him as my assistant. You know, he's got a lot of experience. and I hired the guy that you beat out for the job? I hired a guy I used to work for because he has 20 years of experience to my one, and he said he'd help me. <laughs> All right, so he's in charge now? No, he's or not in he's... charge. He's not in charge. It's just I did this whole beach concept, and, and you know, he's worried about the weather. We can't control the light, <laughs> and uh, he feels like we can capture the same stuff in the studio. So Sounds pretty good. I guess he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, really, he was like, it's impossible. It's impossible to shoot at the beach, so. You know, it's also impossible to eradicate cholera in Mumbai. Did you do that? No, but it's not going to keep me from trying. <laughs> Look, it's, I have to acknowledge, you know, I, I'm potentially in over my head. You're not, Sarah. You're, you're out of your comfort zone, mm. right? Mm. There's a huge difference. Because, look, the work's right here. You were hired for your vision. Here it is. I see it, right? They wanted Hank's work. They would have hired Hank. Did you find Carl supportive and encouraging in that scene or overstepping and mansplaining? Oh, interesting. I felt like he was being supportive. It didn't really flag me as like aggressively mansplaining. I didn't, you know, Sarah is a little hard for me sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I wish that she had come to some of those conclusions on her own. But she didn't seem to be doing that. So I guess somebody needed to tell her. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, I love that. I thought it was supportive as well. And it's part of why when Caleb brought up, is this like mansplaining? I went, I went, ooh, because I had not considered that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was supportive too. I just, oh, well, I'm glad you. I'm just fucking with you. Though. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up though, because it could seem that way. Like he kind of does almost take over, but I really liked it because I think he's right. And to me, if anyone's mansplaining, it's certainly Hank because he's yeah. telling her <laughs> yeah. what to do and how to do it. And I think Carl makes excellent points, like how if they wanted what Hank is doing, they would have hired him. And I absolutely thought his comment about you're not in over your head, you're out of your comfort zone. I'm like, mm. that should be a damn bumper sticker or something. <laughs> like everyone should like, I thought, man, how many times have I sold myself short or thought that I didn't understand something, but really I wasn't giving myself enough credit. And I actually think in that respect, that's like the opposite of mansplaining. That's like what mm-hmm. men should do more often because I think men often just have this sort of confidence that comes with being taken seriously and people listening to you. And I think a lot of times women have not necessarily received that same message. And I'm speaking in really broad strokes here, of course, but I do think for him to just sort of almost pass along this sort of like help, like this is what you do. Dumbo's magic feather. Right. It's like you're, you're feeling nervous, but you can do it. Just, fake it till you make it almost kind of thing. Like, you'll be fine. I loved that. It was certainly better than Hank just sort of reinforcing every insecurity she had and acting like, well, you're not good enough for this. That really bothered me. Yeah, I totally agree. I agree too. (laughs) And I think it almost certainly was included specifically to be a contrast Mm -hmm. with Hank, right? Yeah. Because here's how Hank spoke to her. I really think we should shoot at the beach. That's a bad idea. It's, uh, come on, I told you this. You don't go to the beach for a corporate annual report. Why not? Because you're on a budget, you're on a deadline, and you're not going to get the shots. You're not you gonna don't get... know that? I do know it. I do know that. I just feel like I sold the guy, you know, I got the job because I, I had a vision, and he loved the idea of well, shooting at the I beach. Mean... What? Oh, here no, I'm not here it is. I'm not just... No, no, no. Well, you got it because, wait. yeah, okay, you had a vision, but also it, it helped that you... Sleeping with the tuxedo guy, right? Oh my God, that is not true. You're not sleeping with him? I didn't, that's not why I got the job. That's so insulting. Think about what you just said to me. Here's the thing, I don't get these jobs because I don't have the personality they want. Okay, but then they they give it to somebody who has no experience. I don't have no experience. experience. I thought you were here to help me. Why do you have to make everything so difficult? I'm sorry, I got the job. The world isn't fair, okay? But I brought you in to be my helper. No, what? It it, it didn't work. It's it's not working. I got the big starfish and everything. Uh, Let's just. You know, I tried to do this. It's just not worth it. Don't walk away. It's just not worth it. You're kidding me. You're not walking out. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I actually had some difficulty with that scene because while I completely agreed with Sarah on everything that she said, I, I like literally couldn't believe that she didn't anticipate that this is exactly how it would go if she hired Hank. <laughs> to the point that I'm like, well, I don't feel bad for you because you, <laughs> you should have seen this coming. What did you think Hank's response was going to be other than to take over and insist on doing things his way and undermining your authority. Yeah. And yet that's not an okay way to behave. Yeah, for sure. It did feel very realistic to me again, like same as like, it's not okay that the 
teacher sends Max to the library. It's not okay that Hank does this or that Sarah hired him probably knowing he would behave that way. But she's so insecure and really sells herself so short that I believe that she would have hired him anyway. Like, I I think she maybe could have seen it coming and did it anyway because that's how much she doesn't believe in herself. Mm. And it's probably why she even spoke up at all in that scene is because she had Carl's voice in her head. I mean, not to attribute it all to Carl, but because Carl brought that to her attention. And I think mm-hmm. must have sat with her and she was, you know what? He's fucking right. Let's, I'm cursing a lot today. But <laughs> let's, um, yeah, let's shoot at the beach. And then it just crumbles. <laughs> Danielle, you're so right though. Like I hadn't really thought about this, but it is too bad that she can't come to those conclusions on her own without like a man's voice in her ear. Yeah. You know, I think like imposter syndrome is like a thing I think about a lot in my own life. And you see it sort of play out in this where she's like, why would you go hire the person that didn't get the job? I know you worked for him, but why would you? And I think it also creates such a weird power shift. And like, that's a bit weird. And like, of course, that's not going to go very smoothly. But when you're feeling like, well, maybe I don't deserve this anyway, I need somebody who really knows what they're doing. Like you make choices like that. But it is sort of sad. Uh, I'm glad she found her voice at the end of it and then had a really great shoot because that was like gratifying to watch play out. Yeah. Yeah. It really was. I'm curious what the writers wanted for us as far as Sarah's romantic life. Like, did they want us rooting for Hank at this point in the show, do you think? Is Carl just a red herring or something? Or do you think Mm. they really want us to want Carl? Because at this point, I'm like, Carl is so supportive and Hank isn't. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't remember Carl, in my memory of the original series, I remember Carl as more or less a blip. Yeah. And now I feel like he's been around longer than I remember. And then mm-hmm. seeing him contrasted with Hank, I'm like, this is a great option. I still <laughs> have all the questions I had about how he was introduced. I'm like, wait, so he's just not a sleaze anymore? Or did Sarah reform him somehow? Or what? what's yeah. going on? Or, or is he just a ball of contradictions? Mm-hmm. But in the last few episodes, I've been a big fan of Carl and how he treats Sarah. And I think he could be great for her in lots of ways. And it's just funny because I feel like usually, yeah, if you have the two scenes where one person is really respectful and, and supportive and one person is the opposite, I feel like in romantic comedies, we're supposed to want her to be with the supportive person. Like, I just watched Be- mm-hmm. Because I Said So this weekend, and they would do a point-counterpoint with the two love interests, and we're supposed to like the respectful guy. <laughs> and here I'm like, maybe we're not though, because we get all of this like Hank's inner life and we don't get that with Carl. Maybe it's more like how Dr. Joe back when Jasmine was dating him and had the choice between him and, and mm. Crosby. <laughs> Dr. Joe was perfect and Crosby was not. And I guess maybe <laughs> the show's thesis statement is love is messy. Pick the complicated option. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Although even with all the humanizing they've done of Hank, with especially the recent delving into whether or not he's on the spectrum to explain some of his challenges. I, while I'm really sympathetic to his journey with that, I still feel like it's evidence that he wouldn't be ready for a relationship. Like, well, you're not at this level yet. And Carl seems to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of Sarah taking care of Hank, or it would be, and not a lot of that in return. Yeah. Although now that you say that, I think 
just like how she took care of Seth. And yeah. like, is that what she thinks love is? And that's what we talked about last season, you know, when she was her and Mark. Yeah. It's like, well, Mark doesn't need her because he's a healthy individual. <laughs> and Hank needs her. And I think she's mm-hmm. just like maybe addicted to being needed. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're insecure, it makes total sense that you would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, but that would be something like what if Carl recognized that? much the same way that Mark did and was able to put it to her. And we've got to watch Sarah grapple with that. That's an element of her dating life that I would not be bored by. Yeah. That I would want to see because it's still actually about her and it's about mm-hmm. her learning something about herself Yeah, as it pertains to her romantic life rather than team Carl or team Hank, team yeah. Mark or team Hank. Like, no, I don't need the rom-com stuff. I like the introspective stuff. I mean, I do enjoy rom-coms, but yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. I still, yeah. yeah. My favorite scene in this storyline was Max and Hank. Mm, yeah. The beach, you can't, you can't, on a budget, you can't go to the beach. The sand is wind at the beach. The beach never is good for a deadline. That's just the way it is. You've been talking about the beach and only the beach for the entire afternoon. You're perseverating. Perseverating. Pers- what? Perseverating. It means you're talking about one subject or one thing for an extended period of time. Well, you may find it very interesting. Other people generally find it annoying. Perseverating, huh? Yeah. Yeah, well, you do that too, you know. I know, and then you tell me that I'm being annoying. Okay. Make a good point. I don't understand why you keep complaining about the beach. I mean, you already quit the job. Your problem is over. Uh, I thought you didn't want to talk about it anymore. You're right. Let's talk about the Union Pacific Railroad. Here's what the stink of it is. I was only trying to help. It was okay? incorporated in 1862 by an act of Congress. And now I quit and she's going to fall on her face. That's a metaphor, by the way. She's not really going to fall on her face. She's going to fail. Fail badly. The act was approved by President Abraham Lincoln. And I don't think that Aunt Sarah will fail. Hey, that was good. You, you actually stopped perseverating there, you know? You started talking about my things instead of yours. You did good, Max. Thank you. And I think that my Aunt Sarah's way is better than yours. All right, now you're being stupid, okay? Go back to the railroad. I don't like Photoshop, and I don't like being outside either. But when you're outside, the photos come out better. Yeah, but there's a risk, okay? There's a risk, and we're on a budget. Hers is a risk, mine, sure thing. But yours isn't a sure thing, because yours isn't happening. You didn't get the job my Aunt Sarah did. You're a pretty smart kid, Max. I know. That's terrific. Melissa, you used the word perseverating on the last podcast. Did I really? And I, you did. And I did not know what it meant. And now, voila. I mean, I, I kind of gleaned from the context, but this time I actually looked it up. It means to repeat or prolong an action, thought, or utterance after the stimulus that prompted it has ceased. Hmm. I think I know that word because I perseverate constantly. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely relate to that. It's funny because that's what Max is doing in class too, right? And, but with Hank, he stopped, like he can recognize this is a time to move on from this. And so it's, you know, possible for him to do that, which is another pointing back to like, we could talk to Max about this. Not that it should be all Max, like obviously the teacher's problem, but, you know, it's interesting to sort of see in different environments also how he responds differently. And like, he's in this supportive environment with Hank and it's different than in class where like he knows his teacher doesn't care about him. Yeah. What you just said 
makes me think, I can't believe I didn't think of this when we were talking about all the teaching stuff, because like the absolute most important thing about teaching is having a relationship with the students. We're encouraged at our school to spend at least the first week, sometimes even longer, not even introducing any content and just really trying to find ways to connect with students, get to know students. And like, that is why, you're so right, Daniel, that's so why he listens to Hank and is able to switch subjects and stuff because he knows that Hank cares about him. His teacher doesn't even care enough to try to get him to stay in the classroom. He just sends him to out of the room, like a problem to be solved. And that's amazing. I mean, people are willing to work for people and work with people who care about them. And so, yeah, what a, what a beautiful observation. I love that so much. What I loved about the scene is the way that they share this problem mm-hmm. and neither are perfect at managing it in themselves, but together they can help each other yeah. manage it. And he can call Hank on his BS, like, well, Hank, you're doing it. You talked about nothing but the beach all day. <laughs> and then Hank can call Max on it. And that feels very real to me. I, I'm a perseverator too. Well, or maybe I'm just anxious. And I never <laughs> feel calmer Maybe not never, but one of the things that makes me feel oddly calm is being around someone more anxious than me because I then feel like, well, it's my job to calm them down. And then I'm very calm. I think how strange that I can't just so clearly I have that ability somewhere inside of me and I can't summon it up when I'm in my own head. Mm. Only when there's someone else around who's a bigger mess than I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's really human. I also think this scene, for me, like when we were talking about Hank versus Carl, you just see so much more of Hank. And so even when he's being like a dick in the rest of the episode, (laughs) you see these moments with him. And so like you just understand more of him. And so I think that does, I'm not like necessarily rooting for Hank at this moment, but I do have a very soft spot for him. Because you like see him learning and growing and like also understanding his own problems. Yeah. Yeah. And he does tell her she was right at the end. Like which must have been very hard. Which she has to force him to do. He does. (laughs) Yeah. I did think it was beautiful that Max was able to help him see that. And for him to know, wow, I mean, it's not like uh, Max can mince words or like, you know, he's not gonna he's so blunt about it. Like there's no guesswork as to how he feels so and it's really impressed his bluntness it really is honest because it was just a few episodes ago that he told hank that he liked hank more than sarah yeah as a person (laughs) which i think is true but in this situation he was still objective enough to say no i don't think sarah's gonna fail yeah i love that too yeah and i think he's so right he's just He's one of the most clear-eyed people. I mean, to a fault, certainly, sometimes. He's really perceptive. Yeah. I did just want to say very quickly that that beach scene was super fun. I enjoyed the music and all the shots and everything. And I did think it was a nice resolution because, boy, Hank's ideas sounded super boring. And it did feel like a metaphor, right? Like, is Hank just playing it safe, like, is in his life and with Sarah and not, you know, maybe telling her how he feels. It seemed like, you know, well, he just wants to do the thing that works, the thing that's getting him by, but it's not really bringing him any joy. And that was a very joyful shoot. Um, So I did think that was kind of fun. I feel so silly that I didn't recognize that metaphorical aspect of it. I think you're so right. Oh, thank you. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> even, she even says, like, you don't even like Photoshop. And he admits that. Yeah. But he would rather do this thing he doesn't like that he thinks is going to get him by mm-hmm. than the risky thing. Yeah. I also found it odd that he, a little bit in this episode, but more so when he was interviewing for the job, he was very clear about, well, this is not art. This is a brochure. Yeah. It seems like if it maybe had been art, he might have considered trying to make it work on the beach because then he recognizes that there's some higher value in that. But if it's just for a brochure, well, then just recreate it in the studio. I feel like even in my own artistic life, I can recognize when something is more purely commercial or when it's more prestigious, but it wouldn't drastically alter how I would approach my own contribution to something. Like, yeah. And also, Sarah, like this is a big deal for her. This is not like the 10th or 50th brochure she's done. Right. Like right. this is a big thing for her. So I don't think the line is as clear. Yeah. It's certainly a better approach to life to put everything you've got <laughs> into whatever the job is, even if it's not necessarily your dream job. You know, it's almost like an elitist approach to be like, Ugh, this doesn't matter. So I'm just not going to care about making it something special. Yeah. Well, let's discuss the ongoing saga of Joel and Julia. I was almost offended that Joel would go see someone to talk about how to break their news to their kids but not go see a marriage counselor. Mm, yeah. And yet I understand that he has different goals. Like in one, it's to salvage his relationship with his children and make it as easy on them as possible. And he definitely wants to do that. And the other would be to salvage his relationship with Julia. And I don't think he wants to do that. So yeah. it's not that I think it's like a hole in the story or in his character, just if I were Julia, I would be really upset and I would want to say, okay, if we're going to see someone to break this news to the kids, then you have to tell me right now if we're splitting up or staying together. It can't just be this who knows it's up in the air kind of thing. Of course, like if she were to do that, it would almost ensure that he'd go, all right, we're splitting up. (laughs) You're not going to bully me into staying with you. So I think it's wise that Julia is restraining herself from doing that. Although I'm impressed that she is. Yeah, Because it's not like her. I thought she showed incredible restraint like this entire episode. Yeah. 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 I was like, wow, she really is just like, she can't say anything else about like, she's just so sad. (laughs) Yeah. That struck me too that the threat that Joel is making to their relationship is kind of a real wake-up call because she is now so sensitive to him in this episode. She's so afraid to do anything that might Mm -hmm. upset him. And in this context, it seems sad and kind Mm -hmm. of desperate. But if she had been this attentive to his feelings long before this point, then they might not have ever ended up here. And that's just painful. It's like, oh, too late, too late, Julia. I was thinking too, like, I have obviously never gone through a divorce, but like, it's so, it's so hard to watch something where like, there clearly are issues, you know, and by the point that anybody's talking about going to therapy, the other person decides it's too late. Like that is so sad. And like, I think Joel is, I, I don't know if I think he's justified in not wanting to go to therapy or not. Cause I, I haven't watched uh, the course of it, but like, I just think it's so sad watching this when it's like, maybe we could have gone to counseling six months ago before you've already shut the door emotionally on it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I it broke my heart that scene where yeah she's like saying to him don't go and I thought yeah. his answer was so honest more honest than I think he is with her in the rest of the episode like when that mediator is asking what their intentions are and she says she's hoping that it's temporary and they're going to reconcile I think he knows that's not what he yeah. wants I don't think he can say it like I don't think he's and, and I do think that's unfair. Like, I think he's being, he thinks he's being kinder by not fully saying it, but I don't think that's kinder because limbo is not kind. <laughs> you know, I think, no. I think just- And it gives her hope. Her, right, yes. And that's not fair either. If there's no hope, yeah. just tell her that. Yeah. I say that like and, it's easy. It's obviously yeah. not. Yeah. And I was more struck in this episode than ever before by the abruptness and severity of Joel's reaction. Mm. To me, it's starting to feel like a bigger deal, like points against him. Yeah. And in my book, even though we have talked at such length about how this is not coming out of nowhere. Yeah. But he really, I suddenly I'm feeling like he had never given any indication that Julia's behavior was such a big deal until incredibly recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, talk about bad communication. If he has not been communicating what a deal breaker this is. Yeah. Like, even though they have fought before about, like, her prioritizing her work needs over his, it was usually, like, almost an annoyance, I think. Well, maybe that's not fair. It was a bigger deal than that. It just seems to me, suddenly I, I could relate to Julia feeling like, where on earth is this coming from? Yeah. And how did we get here? It seems like I made one mistake and... Suddenly you're moving out? Yeah. Only having the context of this episode, I felt so much for Julia and I felt almost nothing for Joel. I was like, you're being so awful to her. (laughs) And like, yeah, I just thought the way he handled the mediation was like really bad. And it, yeah, it did not feel good to me. Yeah. I've been mostly on Joel's side, I think because of context of other things. Yeah. I had too. But I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the thing I fault him for the most is probably not telling her earlier, like years ago, mm-hmm. how big of a deal this is. Like Caleb and I even noticed, I think it's like the season two, either premiere or very early in season two, Julia just basically decides that they're going to have a second kid mm-hmm. and he wants to have a conversation about it. And she sort of blows that off and just goes ahead and like talks to Adam about how we're going to have a second kid. (laughs) (laughs) And Joel's like, we didn't talk about it with each other first. And she's like, basically shrugs. (laughs) She just acts like, I don't understand why this is a big deal. I feel like that's just the first example that happened to pop into my head. He doesn't want to tell Sydney about heaven. She does it anyway. She does it anyway. He doesn't want to hold Victor back a year. She does it anyway. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to give Victor back to whoever he would give him back to. And she almost got her way on that. Yeah. She asked if she could buy Zoe's baby without asking him. She quit her job without asking him. Yes. These are the reasons. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. yeah. These are the reasons I've been more on Joel's side because I'm like, yeah. he has given and given and given. Mm-hmm. So I, but I do think he, they're so bad at communication. Caleb and I have noticed this on this watch. They never really resolve any of those things ever. It The pattern is just, she does what she wants and waits for Joel to get over it. 
And this, <laughs> this time it didn't happen. And I think if you're reading between the lines, or at least this is my interpretation, he's so angry about all of those examples yeah. that he's like, no, I'm done. You know, he just can't go to counseling with her. He's, he's, I feel like he can barely even look at her. He's just so done. And I just think, okay, so if I'm going to fault Joel for something, if he was ever really serious about she and I need a better marriage, not just I need to find a way out of this marriage at some point, I think he should have, it would have been really, really hard to do, but I think he should have said, this is going to be a big deal at some point. We can't keep putting these little band-aids on things. You can't just keep getting your way and thinking that it's not having some detrimental effect on how I feel about you. Uh, it's going to be fine until it's not, you know, and, and they, he just never really says anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I blame him for. I think I get how eventually that would wear a person down, but I, he, he really gave no indication that she was going to lose him. And yeah, even yeah. just saying like, when you do this, I feel like I don't matter or like I have no say in our, you know, just being honest about like, this makes me feel really bad. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then having a conversation about that and not being like, you made this terrible choice without me, but it's like, I feel bad when you do this. And yeah. eventually it's going to make me feel so bad that like, I'm not going to want to be around it anymore. Yeah. And that's, if I wanted anything from Joel in this episode, like, especially after that scene where Julia says, don't move out. It was just to hear him express what he's feeling at mm. this point. Because like the moment of learning about Julia's betrayal has passed. So this is not some impetuous move. I'm moving out. No, he's he's calmed down. I wish she would ask him, why do you feel like we're beyond help? Or mm. like it almost feels like he's going through something now that mm -hmm. he's not telling her about. Yeah. That's like almost separate. And maybe she should know about it if she were good, but it's like, well, Let's live in the world we're living in. And she's clearly she, been she oblivious for a long yeah. time. Yeah, She doesn't yeah. have the skills or even know that she has to like do that work because he's never said that. Right. And, you know, Melissa, something you said about just their pattern, that like their pattern has been, I do whatever I want and wait for you to get over it. That makes me realize why something has been bothering me about her that I haven't been able to pinpoint. And it's when she would say things like, you know, he's sleeping on the couch and she would go, what are we doing? This isn't us. And I, for some reason, it always bothered me, but I wasn't sure why. And I think it's because of what you just illuminated. This isn't us means, Joel, us is I do whatever I want. You get over it. Why aren't you getting over it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that's not a nice question to ask. <laughs> I'm like, why don't you say, I feel really bad that you're so hurt. And clearly you feel I hurt you. And I, something's not adding up for me. Can you explain how I hurt you? Like, because she yeah. is so oblivious. I'm not sure she knows what she did that hurt him so much. Yeah, or if she thinks it's just the affair or whatever, the kiss. Yeah. Like, it's clearly not just that, but she might think, I just did this one thing. Yeah. Right. I do think the closest we get to him, like, breaking it down for was during the election um, results they're there with with uh, Christina and then they go out yeah. into the hall and he basically has a speech where he's like, I gave you nine years where you were the star at work and I championed you and I, I could not have supported you more. I've been the breadwinner three months 
you cannot give me that. And I think that's what broke him. Like, I think like that's, mm. I think that the, I think he just always assumed, well, if this were ever reversed, she would just be as supportive to me as I've been to her. And then for that not to be true. And I think that's saying something. I mean, that's letting her know, but I don't know that she gets how big that is. I, I don't even think she really hears him when he says that. Cause she keeps saying, yeah. I am happy for you. I am sharing in your joy. But not really, you know, and I, I think sometimes when people are so used to a dynamic being a certain way, I don't know if they can even like picture a different dynamic. Like maybe she thinks they are 50-50 or that they are equal, but that's because they've been living at 70-30 so long that like that yeah. feels equal to her. And it brings up a really interesting question philosophically, I think, of like if someone in a marriage or in a relationship is oblivious to their own shortcomings, how much of a responsibility is it for the other person to make them aware? Because, I mean, like Joel said, he's kind of right when he's like, the problem isn't the marriage, the problem is you. <laughs> I'm not sure he's correct, but I believe he feels that way. Yeah. And I think he has lots of examples to support that case. And if she is just not getting it, at what point is he allowed to say, it's not my job to make you get it, you know? Yeah. You need to examine this yourself. Yeah, I think that, like, my boyfriend always says, like, when we're in relationships, we're mirrors for each other. Like, we help sort of, like, illuminate the stuff that we can't see. And I do think that it is important to be there in that way for somebody, but then it's their job to keep asking the, the questions and look in the mirror. Yeah, and, like, yeah. go to therapy and figure out why you do this. So I, I do think like the initial thing can be necessary from someone else because you can't see that inside of you. But like once you've been told once, maybe twice, like, you know, like once should probably be enough in a serious conversation for you to be like, oh, I need to do some thinking about this. Yeah. The thing that fascinates me is I think we're all capable of like growth and change, but maybe only to an extent. Like I do sometimes wonder like, to what extent could she be more thoughtful mm. of, of Joel? Like, I mean, I think, yes, I think she could do better than she did. But, like, she's not going to then suddenly become someone else, you know, who mm -hmm. isn't sort of um, bossy and, and wants to take over. That's when I wonder how compatible people are. But then, of course, mm. they were compatible for 10 years. I, I, don't, I don't know. To what extent should we even expect people to change, you know? I think consideration probably isn't that as hard as, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as a, but, but I do, I definitely, sometimes it's just compatibility yeah. at the end of the day. Good point though. I don't think he wants her to be an entirely different person. He loves yeah. things about her, but yeah. Well, and that was something that really struck me for them in this whole episode, like in the scene where they're watching the kids play video games, that mm. was just excruciating oh, yes. to me. Yeah. And sometimes when things get so acrimonious between a couple you wonder how they were ever romantic or like how they ever got along. And to see where they are now in the series versus so many other times was a nice illustration of that. Like because we're in season five, we've seen Joel and Julia be very happy and very romantic lots of times before. But now here is where we are. And the way they were sort of on eggshells around each other, I thought it feels very real. I mean, it's extremely uncomfortable, but. Do you know, I don't know if you know about like the writer's trajectory. 
I wonder if when they wrote these characters in the beginning that they wrote them to be sort of realistic in that sense that these were the ones that might have problems down the road. That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know. We both have felt on this rewatch that when we had seen the series before, we thought their marital problems sort of sprang up out of nowhere. Mm. But on this watch, knowing perhaps knowing they were mm. coming, we saw clues mm. from the very beginning. Interesting. So I don't know. You might be right. Or maybe they, when they got to season five, were thinking, Which? maybe they were noticing all those clues. Yeah. Like, hey, look at this. Have we never realized? Wow, we could really break them up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and it does make me wonder, like, Again, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say something that never happens. And I think I've actually already alluded to this before, but Adam and Christina never have a similar storyline. I mean, I think that the most pressure... Nowhere near this severe. No, nowhere near that. Yeah. Even, yeah, when he got his own kissing someone inappropriate storyline, it was much less severe. And I don't think their marriage has ever been in danger or anything like that. And it makes me wonder, like, would they have been able to, like, find clues that they'd unintentionally, you know, planted or whatever? Like, just in writing conflict, would they have been mm. able to, like, have them have a similar storyline where they just mm. couldn't anymore? Or would that have made less sense because they're actually pretty good at communicating? I don't know. I But I do think it's like, you know, in season one, Adam says to her, I don't have a life, I have a schedule. And she says, think of how hurtful that is. You know, they have kind of significant arguments and problems and you might argue worse ones. I mean, finding out about Max, having a special needs kid like like that, I mean, that's gotta be harder than Victor's school issues. It's not harder than adopting a 10 year old, but like as far as just like their, their issues with their school, it's at least comparable, I would think. We got all those statistics about 80% of married couples who have a kid on the spectrum divorce, you know, so they, Mm. they probably could have come up with Mm -hmm. some stuff, but they, I I just wonder why Joel Julia and, you know, Mm -hmm. also speaking of privilege, what a privilege it is for one of your huge problems in your marriage to be, Oh, it's so hard for me to be the stay at home parent. Yeah. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And that is one thing that bothers me about all this. Julia, go get a fucking job. (laughs) Like, I get that maybe that you're probably not going to get a job anywhere near the level you were at. But if it is causing you this much stress yeah. in your life and in your yeah. marriage. Do something. yeah, Do something. Yeah. Go, you know, give people legal advice on the street corner. Just something <laughs> to give you some sense of purpose. Yes. Good point. The scene with their kids was just as heartbreaking as I imagined it would be. Yeah. But the one that really got me was Julia confiding in her parents. Me too. I was sobbing and I did not remember it coming. And Yeah. I had the same experience. I was heartbroken when they told the kids, but it didn't quite get me. And when she tells her parents, uh, it was really hard. It's so funny. When I was listening to MK's episode from a few weeks ago, you guys were saying, I think I cry every episode, like (laughs) every single one, there's something that gets you. And so I really thought of that when I watched this, because you're like, okay, I made it through the whole thing. Okay. And then you're like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. And it was actually, I mean, it it was sad, but it also, I was crying because I thought it was really beautiful. Yeah. It reminded me of something back from the Parenthood movie. Oh, wow. When Jason Robards tells the like Adam-like character, Gil, it never ends. Meaning no matter how old your children get, they're still your children. They're Mm -hmm. still your babies. And 
even Larry was still his little boy, no matter how old he got. And I thought, you know, Sydney and Victor went to Julia's room when they were feeling crummy because they thought, well, mom will make it better. Oh. And Julia did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Because no matter how big she is, she knows her mom and dad will make it better. And it also made me think my parents would, you know, my mom has her little mantra of like that she'll always love us. And one that's not doesn't quite loom that large in our family folklore, but like probably second place is you can always come home. That was something mm-hmm. they literally repeated to us over and over. And I would always be like, even if I murder someone, I can come <laughs> home. And they're like, come home and we will figure out <laughs> what to do. Oh. And I think it's so important. And so it, it hit on those heartstrings in me too. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And I think they can't solve it for her, or fix it for her, you know, how helpless they must feel. I mean, but they are able to make her feel better, you know I mean? And that's yeah. an interesting distinction, right? You can't, you can't fix someone's problems, but you can listen to them and, and just One be also there. for Julia yeah. to be, to live with someone, not anymore, but oh. to be living with someone who you start to feel like, do you even like me? Yeah. I mean, that you're so on eggshells around go home. Your mom and your dad are not going to be on eggshells around you. Mm-hmm. They're going to support you and they're going to love you. And you don't have to worry about how you've treated them. That's kind of built in. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I don't mean to skip over a whole like evolution throughout an episode, but Melissa, just a few minutes ago when you said sometimes people can get so used to one dynamic in a relationship that it's almost impossible to change. My mind went right to Zeke and Camille. Oh, I yeah. thought, boy, they have been in one dynamic for so long. Mm-hmm. And it felt impossible to change. And yet, almost out of nowhere in this episode, one of them managed to change. You know, I didn't like being here without you. And now, um, now that you're back, you're not all the way back, you know? Not all of you is here. <laughs> I'm all here. I don't, I don't mean it in a bad way. You went out there and you had this wonderful adventure, this got a taste for life. Then you're happy. You're the, you're the happiest I've ever seen you. Well, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. The bad thing? Sweetheart, is that um, I can't help but feel that I was the one that was holding you back from being happy. I just needed a little adventure, that's all. I don't want to lose you, Millie. You're not losing me. See, while you were gone, I realized that... um, Hard. Well, in our marriage, that you're the one that's made most of the compromises. You're the one that's done most of the sacrificing. You've been here for the family all the time. And if selling this house is important to you, and I know it is, then I'm willing to do that for you, for us. Because being in this house without you is just not going to work. It just strikes me that 
Danielle, if you were one of our guests who had never seen the show before ever <laughs> and had just gotten dropped in, you would have such a wildly inaccurate idea of who Zeke is. You know? Zeke is just a prince. Oh. Yeah, what a totally. beautiful communicator. He's so sensitive. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not like it took five seasons yeah, to get him anywhere yeah. remotely. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't know that this is a miracle. Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It did feel miraculous. I did not remember it. Mm-mm. It almost felt unbelievable and yet i feel like craig t nelson sells it so well and you want it to be true so badly (laughs) that you're like come on zeke be better and then he just is better bonnie bedelia's reaction was so terrific too Mm -hmm. like more shock and disbelief than anything else i loved that after he said he would sell the house i even like went back and watched it again to make sure she doesn't say anything. Wow. She doesn't say thank you. She doesn't say, I'm so glad that you feel that way. I think that's not good. She's speechless. Because yeah. I feel like <laughs> that's the appropriate reaction. And then even earlier in the scene when he says, um, I'm the one that held you back from being happy. Mm. She doesn't try and, oh, no, that's not true. <laughs> she's, I just needed a little adventure. So she's, she's kind of trying to alleviate his guilt, but... Not by lying to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he says, I feel like you're not really here. And she's like, oh, I'm here. I'm right here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought that was another funny moment in that. Yeah. yeah. She was like, well, maybe we're not going to go quite there. Like, I don't know. She realized this whole conversation was coming and she was like, oh, I'm here. Like, <laughs> I'm I mean, <laughs> if it were me, I would have thought that he was getting ready to criticize me instead of take responsibility mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah. The way that he's like, you're not all the mm-hmm. way here. It felt like, oh no, you're about to accuse her of something. Mm. But instead it was, I don't mean it in a bad way. And then everything he says after that, I'm like, wow, it's everything we've been hoping for. I mean, literally our last episode, I think um, our guest Juliet and and Caleb and I, like we kind of wrote a script. We're like, this is what he should do. And he kind <laughs> yeah. of just does it. And maybe yeah. wow. maybe it's not a miracle. We remembered it or subliminally some or something. Yeah. 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 But I really would have said I did not remember him ever saying anything like this. And I wonder now if they were intentionally trying to fake us out because one of their earlier scenes, I could not get a read on them when she was mm-hmm. taking the class outside yeah. and yeah. painting. What's going on? I'm in class. Huh? class huh you're drinking alone and eating ham what a class <laughs> have some prosciutto it's delicious oh thanks <sighs> huh so uh where is she well it was supposed to be italy but she's in france we were talking about the french impressionist yesterday and so she, she just stopped on a train and went to monet's garden really <laughs> yeah Good. Long way to go to a garden. Yeah, it's pretty wonderful. I feel like I'm back in Firenze. Francesca says that it's a good idea to create an artistic space around you when you work. I think she's right. Feels incredible. Go work on your car. I thought that all of Zeke's comments were pretty rude and yeah. like undermined. Oh, you go all that way to get to a garden and you're eating ham and yeah, and stuff. And yet they were smiling at each other like they had just been sweet and flirtatious. And I was like, what's going on? 
Is she pissed? I feel like she should be pissed, but she didn't seem pissed. She was like, go work on your car. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe was her way of, but she said it with like a little wink, I feel like. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. you scamp. I'm like, what? I thought that scene was sort of weird. I felt like they were missing each other. Yeah. Like, yeah. they were not having the same conversation together. Yeah. But maybe they were just trying to fake us out. So when he said, you're not here. Yeah. We, th- we think, oh, oh he's going to give her go. what yeah. for. And instead, it was Oh, you realized you were wrong. Yeah. I wonder if she was just like getting used to their new normal, which I think in her head is we're still together. We love each other. We have completely different personalities and interests and nothing shared at all. We'll have this strange exchange, but then I'll just tell you to go work on your car while I take my class. Parallel lives. We're not. Let's return to our dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I paint. You work on your car. It's fine. It's fine. And I think... Maybe it's a little similar to Hank wanting to like do the brochure in the studio instead of like take the risk and and go on the beach. I mean, maybe I'm reaching. I don't know. But I do think like it is safer, quote unquote. This actually goes to Joel and Julia as well. It's it's safer in a way to not have the hard conversations and to just let things coast along as they do. To just let the mold Oh, wow. Nice. Wow. I mean, you were walking right up front. So it's just like, oh, man. Let's just put all Mold these beads on the same is the biggest metaphor string. of all. That's right. That stain is just little, but if it's unattended, it will get big. Yeah. That's what happens. And so I think for, for Zeke, what, 40 some years into their marriage, or, you know, to address this stain now. That's kind of amazing. And and it makes me think like, boy, it sure makes his romantic gesture of a song on his ukulele at the end of season one where they don't divorce ridiculous. Like this is yeah. what he should have said to save their marriage, you know? Um, but maybe it makes sense. He thought the romantic gesture could save them. And it did in a way, but it was kind of a patch, right? Like they mm-hmm. have they have consistently still had issues. They've had good times too, but they still have a lot of the same communication issues that they ever had. This is the real work, you know? Well, and it's like you've been saying a lot, especially recently, how highly you value people who can self-reflect. Yeah. And that you're much more likely to forgive people for faults if they recognize them. Yeah. I thought that's one of the things he did so well in this apology or, or monologue, whatever, it didn't feel like, well, if I sell the house, do you promise not to go traveling anymore? Right. It didn't feel like that. No. It felt like I've had time to reflect on myself because there's been no one else here. Mm-hmm. And I care about you. I see how much this means to you. I can't deny how happy you are. And I love you being happy because I turns out I genuinely love you. <laughs> <laughs> so... More of that, please. It, and it felt like a genuine apology, not something he's offering up to get something else he wants. That's what made it so magnificent, really. Like, yeah. it's so hard to do, too. Like, we've talked about this before as well. Like, when you're in your own head, your own perspective, which we all are, I mean, it's it can be really hard to understand someone else's perspective. I mean, I think that's Julia's main issue. Like, I don't think she understands how much she's hurt Joel. And I I think that for for him to get it, for Zeke to understand, 
even if it took decades and five seasons for us, <laughs> for him to like understand she's not just being selfish and strange, kind of distant back from her trip. This is bigger. And yeah, I have to look inward. Amazing. When that, I feel like, ties into your mirror metaphor, Danielle. Like, Mm -hmm. if he wasn't looking Mm -hmm. to see what she reflected back to him about himself, then he would have missed it. And it took her going off and having an experience of her own. And she comes back changed, and he knows, well, it's not because of me Mm -hmm. that she's so happy. And so then he has to think, what about the woman I knew what was that reflecting to me about our relationship? I loved in his speech when he said, uh, I'll sell the house for you. And then he amends it to for us. Wow. It reminded me, Danielle, I know you'll know the song from Music Man, My White Knight. Mm, My mm-hmm. favorite line, she's singing about the man she would like to be with. And she says, And I would like him to be. Interested in us than in me. Mm. And I just love that little hierarchy there. Yeah. And I thought that was actually kind of a crucial thing too, to say, I'm not selling it for my wife. She wore me down. Right. It's not that. It's this is gonna make us stronger. Yeah. Oh, and that's the whole sitcom cliche that I hate that does pop up on this show from time to time. (laughs) And I'm just like, ugh, like, why does anyone get married if marriage is that? Like, I know it's such a small moment, but I still think about it sometimes. Ed, the one that Julia kissed, you know, when he's talking Mm. about getting divorced and he's like, I'm going to get a big man chair that my wife never let me get and I'm going to sit in it. And I'm like, Mm. God. I know that that's real. I mean, people talk about their spouses that way, the nagging wife, the lazy husband, but I'm so bored with those tropes. And I don't think that's, I don't think we should all just universally accept that, well, men are lazy and women are nags. And that's just what straight (laughs) couples are like. You know, I just think, no, (laughs) you know, and and for, for Zeke to, yeah, not, not present it like, well, she kept, yeah, she wore me down. And for him to be like, She's given up a lot. I need to give too. That's yeah. what a healthy relationship language like looks like, you know? This idea of give and take and, and appreciating each other and not resenting each other. And I know it won't always be like that. There are, you know, moments, of course. But... And now I'm thinking, what does Camille see in the mirror then when she looks at her husband? In this moment, she would see, I'm valued. What I say matters. Right. I am listened to and respected. Yeah. And it used to be she was not seeing those things reflected back. No. I really love that idea. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. Well, the last <laughs> story, I feel like <laughs> we the had least consequential one, the one is the title storyline, story You've Got Mold. I, I thought there was real irony in Zeke acquiescing to Camille's wish to sell the house at the exact moment that a big empty house was a huge asset to the family. Yeah. Yeah. And what I kind of loved that because I think in that sense, I don't think Camille herself would have it any other way. I'm I'm sure she's like, oh, how great that we have room when our kids need to come home. That's, you know. It is an interesting thing. Like, I remember last season, Joel says to Julia, like, I think Julia says something like, well, you're not struggling with Victor at all. 
And he says something like, well, you're not giving me any room to struggle with him because you're so convinced that this was a mistake and we need to like give him back that I can't express any doubt because then you'll take that and run with it. I I don't know if that Mm. makes sense, Mm -hmm. but like how that relates to this is (laughs) Camille will miss their house, but she wants to sell the house she can't commiserate with, with, you know, her husband about, Oh, it's going to be hard when we can't have, you know, Crosby and Jasmine drop by or Sarah when she needed us or look, Julia showed up. Oh, she, she couldn't say any of that because he'd be like, it's why we shouldn't sell the house. Yeah. And so like now that he is given, I think she's actually able to think to herself, this is going to be hard. This is not just a sacrifice for him. It's for me as well. I'm going to miss this. It doesn't change the fact that I want something else, but now she's allowed to properly mourn it, I think, instead of almost resenting the house because there's no... She's being forced to live in it. Right. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So I think that's another reason why it's so important to have that give and take so that both people can really feel their true feelings instead of just feel defensive and resentful. As for the mold itself, (laughs) I thought... Would Crosby really not know where the water heater was? That normally wouldn't surprise me, except isn't this the house that Crosby completely renovated himself for Jasmine? Yeah. Like, surely at some point in all that construction you had Joel do, (laughs) you figured out where the water heater was. Wouldn't you also be like, Joel, does the water heater have to be in the attic? That seems terribly dangerous and irresponsible. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) maybe i shouldn't have bought this house as a giant gesture (laughs) i also found it strange after their little dust up in the motel i understood it somehow but i I still find it funny that crosby has no boundaries when it comes to his family at all except for this one instance in which jasmine wants to very practically take advantage of how tight-knit his family is. And suddenly, Crosby doesn't want anything to do with them. Oh, we can't possibly go to my mom and dad. Yeah. So was the, is, has something happened? Like, because when they're talking with Adam, too, Crosby's like, don't even, like, nope, it's not happening. And, like, I was like, what happened? Why doesn't Crosby want to go there? Nothing happened. <laughs> I mean, all I can think of is that maybe the one way in which he feels superior <laughs> to the other siblings. It's yeah. like, well, at least I didn't move back home like yeah. Sarah and live in the guest house. Um, but even that, I feel like you but Sarah's, Sarah's was indefinite. Yours yeah. is clearly just while you're... Yeah. And he doesn't so ever weird. say that. So it's like, I'm just inventing that that's the yeah. reason he doesn't want to go. I don't know. I wondered if they were in a big feud. Like, it really was like, something must be going on with his parents. The only thing I thought is maybe he wanted to feel superior to Jasmine or something because mm-hmm. one of the biggest issues they had was when Jasmine's mom stays with them. And, and mm-hmm. he was all like, you know, we can't live like this. We can't just have, you know, family around like that. Like for uh. me, or maybe that put him off of it. Like, or all their storylines the last two seasons have been people staying with them or now they're going to go stay with someone else. Maybe he's like, I want a more interesting storyline. Maybe that was it. Um, (laughs) No, I I wondered that though. Like if it was like, I made such a fuss about your mom living with us. Now you'll have the upper hand and you'll be able Mm. to say that my parents are annoying. Like, I think he wanted separate. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That was something I wondered about, but doesn't seem like a very good that makes sense and adds to my admiration for jasmine's practicality i love that it yes 
for her, it was like, and she was pretty gracious. Oh my God. But like, it was the obvious answer. Yeah. And that she just treated it with no, like, you're not crawling back home with your tail between your legs. We need a place to stay. They've got room. Yeah. What's it was, the problem? One of my favorite moments of this storyline was when they're in the motel and she's like, no, it's going to be fine because we're going to go stay with your parents. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. happening. She's like, we're not having a conversation about it. I think that's a fair thing yes. to, as opposed to the Joel and Julia <laughs> yeah. stuff. Just be like, no, this is the this is the obvious thing to do. Yeah. Sorry, we have to yeah. do yeah. it. Yeah. It's not like... Gilmore Girls, where I can't ask for money from my parents. Yeah. We have all this horrible trauma. (laughs) Nope. Like, it was fine for your mom to do your laundry until two years ago. It's like, just live with them. It's fine. Melissa, you said something in the uh, the podcast with MK. Really, all of it was very good, very good episode. But um, where you were saying about how on the rewatch, you realized how, like, cool you thought Crosby was in your first watch and now you're like oh like there's a lot more (laughs) going on here and I really felt that in this episode when he's like like secretly looking up the insurance thing with Adam like not telling Jasmine like Crosby I don't I don't know about all this yeah I didn't love it yeah also like it's not been a good season for him no it's been pretty bad I also wondered okay Jasmine is like a strong person as evidenced in this episode and so it made me wonder like how emphatic must he have been for her not to just take the initiative and call about the stain? Like, mm. it, it, you know, it couldn't be him just saying, oh, I've got it. Don't even worry about it. Like, I, I could see her being like, it's getting bigger all the time. And him, like, I'm like, how how mm. obnoxious must he have been for her to be like, it's not worth it. Let's just get mold and think. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm like, why wouldn't they have just called earlier if if nothing? I could see him living alone and being like, oh, I didn't think it'd be that big of a deal. But like, why wouldn't she have called? I just imagine he must have talked down to her or like just insisted or something not good. I, I don't know. I was so put well, off. Er, yeah. Earlier when you were saying, could the writers go back in Adam Kirstina and find clues to justify breaking them up? <laughs> I was thinking you could really do that with Jasmine and Prosper. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't. It wouldn't take five minutes. (laughs) You're a child. Everyone would totally buy it. Yes. She's like, it actually makes me worry for them a little. Like, why are they together? (laughs) This season, I've really been wondering that. You know, they are kind of exemplifying that trope. I mean, she's, she wasn't nagging him in this episode. There have been times I felt like she was a little naggy. Like, oh, we're getting a minivan. Like, like, oh, come on. Even though you're right. Like just some, Anyway, but, but then you barely pay attention because he spends the whole episode calling it a vagina. So like, <laughs> it negates yeah. anything she does wrong. You're like, well, yeah. That is and a then he's thing. just this toddler. Yeah, through the whole season. It's terrible. It's such regression. Like in earlier seasons, he has all this growth, learning he has a son, and, and now it's like, boop, boop, I don't, he's just a fool. Yeah. <laughs> I just come on. Yeah, and all of his storylines are about him straining against the confines of this life that he willingly entered into. He was desperate for it. Like, it's the whole reason he bought the house. Yeah, it's like... I want to be married to her and be father to Jabbar, but I don't want (laughs) to... Have any, like, practical (laughs) things that go on. Yeah, and move in with my parents when we got mold, and I don't want to... I mean, am I supposed to feel bad for him that he's with an incredible person? Who's very yeah, she's patient. Very with him. cool. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel bad for you. Ugh. Well, 
a la Mary Catherine Gallagher, I feel that my feelings about this episode could best be expressed in the lyric from the Oscar-winning song Beauty and the Beast. Bittersweet and strange, finding you can change, learning you were wrong. I feel like that applied to Zeke, to Hank, to Crosby, mm. and to Julia. Wow. And as we already said, that you could broaden the you've got mold as a metaphor for things are not going the way you want them to go. Things are festering. Yeah. You got to tend to them because that is Adam and Christina and Max. and. Yeah. Wow. That's good. And at first I thought it was a very odd title for the episode. Even though, like we said, when it was on TV, no one ever knew what the titles were. Mm. So I don't know how much thought they ever put into them. But I thought, this is the storyline you named the whole episode after? Is there an <laughs> old one? And yet, if you think of it metaphorically, it I think really it works. actually yeah. really works. Yeah. Gosh, do you think that if they did a revival of this show like 30 years from now, that... Crosby would have to give a similar speech to Jasmine that Zeke gave <laughs> to Camille in this one. Like, did I hold you back from happiness? Should you have married I Joe? think they'll be divorced no. long oh, before no. that. <laughs> <laughs> Should you have married Joe? <laughs> Probably. Um, it is interesting. <laughs> Joe and Carl will be living in a <laughs> sad bachelor path. Oh, man. It's a Ed's divorce dad. Uh, <laughs> Doctors. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's true. Yeah, Ed doesn't deserve to be there. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting. Like, I wonder. To be buried in his man chair. <laughs> <laughs> Got to a dark place. It did. It does make me wonder, though. Like, I wonder how many people watch the show and don't see anything wrong with Crosby and Jasmine's dynamic, even in this season. But because, like, it's the same dynamic we see presented. It's such a trope. Like maybe people don't question it. I mean, I know people who think it's normal to not really like the person you're married to, you know, mm -hmm. like they're just kind of like, well, you know, you make sacrifices. You, you, you got married and you you stay married forever and that's the deal. And, or like, I don't know, or, or people just think, it's about the kids instead of it's about each other or, you know, I, I don't know. I think there are a lot of reasons why people might not question it too much, whether it's in a show, uh, which is kind of through a window or in their own lives, which is like the mirror thing. I don't know. Like, so. Especially when he's presented as this like charming goofball. Yeah. You know, I think it's like easy to not look too close at the other stuff because yeah. you're like, oh, well, he's supposed to be like fun and funny and cool and all this other stuff. Yeah, that's true. I like that. Like it sort of just masks like I mean, I was also bothered, Danielle, by him like hiding the insurance stuff from and I mean it doesn't even work I mean like they immediately have to <laughs> yeah. you know but like, like his instinct this whole season has been to lie to her about big and small things I mean nothing too big nothing yeah yeah but like it's just he's very comfortable with that there's even that throwaway line about him smoking in a previous episode with with Oliver Rome anyway yeah and it really made me think about Zeke probably because Zeke has such a transformation in this episode but how similar, like when they're in the motel, Jasmine and Crosby are to Camille and Zeke. Mm, like yeah. he wants to do things his way, the clearly wrong way. Yeah. Because it's just belligerence. Like it's not based on any argument or, or point of view. Just but this is the way I want to do it. Yeah. And that she has to sort of insist, no, we're gonna do the thing 
that makes obvious sense. Yeah. <laughs> and Julia is the same way. I mean, I, I have more compassion for her because I think the problems are more nuanced. But I feel like it's the same issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, who else has a relationship where I just do whatever I want and I wait for you to get over it? Zeke and Camille. Yeah, totally. And Camille's just calling his bluff now. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to get over it. I'm going to get over to Italy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe we're just seeing it play out if Camille had 30 years earlier, 20 years earlier, just left and was like, I don't want counseling. I'm done. Like, as opposed to, you know, what would be really interesting is for one of the characters on the show to make those connections. Yeah. Like if Joel Mm -hmm. were to say, you're just like your father. Yeah. Yeah. Or for Jasmine to say, you're just like your father. You're being really (laughs) Zeke-like right now. Yeah. Yeah. And for then the child to have to sort out recognizing a parent's flaws and reconciling that with all the things you love about them. Because none of this is me saying Zeke's a bad father. I think Zeke was a wonderful father and I don't think his kids are wrong to feel that way about him. But that doesn't mean you can't be honest about some of the struggles he's had and how you maybe thought that was normal. So you're just replicating them. I think that's just such a part of being an adult is like having that mental shift of, oh, my parents are not always right. And they're not always like they are doing what they think is best for me, but it might not always be the right thing to do. Yeah. And Yeah, it would be it would be really cool to watch that play out a little bit. And how funny that like Julia kind of had that earlier this season (laughs) with Camille. She just got it wrong. Oh, my God. I'm just like Camille. No, (laughs) Listening to me. Yeah. We're like, oh, my God, you're so mistaken. (laughs) Well, and also you're right that he was a wonderful father and still is, I think, not perfect, but wonderful. But like, would they even be able to see that he wasn't necessarily a very good husband though? Would they be able to Mm. separate that? Like, okay, he was great to us. He put us first. He made sacrifices for us. Did he do that for his wife? Not really. Yeah. That's interesting, you know, like, because I think a lot of times people have trouble seeing past their relationship with a person. You know, if someone's good to me, it's hard to like really reconcile how they may have treated somebody else that you care about. That's hard. Yeah. And we've seen Adam reflect on it a little bit long ago with his anger. Mm. He said, you know, I'm trying not to be like my dad. And Christina saying, you're nothing like your dad, even though Adam is incredibly like his dad, (laughs) particularly when it comes to his anger. But even the fact that he's aware of it Mm -hmm. makes me instantly cut him so much slack. Like, oh, you're aware that you are predisposed to struggling with your temper. Yeah. Okay. I wish you good luck mm-hmm. in fighting against those instincts because it's not easy. Yeah. I think that's really fascinating. I wish they would have returned to that well a little more story-wise with other characters. Yeah. I think what we've learned is that we should have been writers uh, as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's so funny. It's so easy to reflect on something other people have created. Right, yeah. Of course, of and, course. But they're spinning this out of nothing. Yeah, very yeah. impressive. Which is yeah. so <laughs> impressive. Like, Yeah. I enjoyed this episode I and I enjoyed too. this podcast. Yes. Me too. Daniela, it was lovely to meet you. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Yay. Thank you so much. <laughs> Do you have anything that you would like to tell our listeners about? 
Like I know you had this album come out recently. Yes, oh. yes. So um, I work a lot with this composer named Joe Iconis. He wrote the Broadway show Be More Chill. And I work um, usually on the music team with him. I like help make his sheet music and he'll, you know, play a song and I'll, I'll turn it into sheet music. He released like a 44 song album, I think 44 songs um, wow. a few months ago. And it's sort of a accumulation of all of his work that doesn't fit into his shows that he's just written as sort of standalone material. And it's pretty a big feat doing doing the whole thing. But I, I wrote down a lot of the music. I made all the parts for all the musicians. I didn't write the parts for them, but I made them look nice. <laughs> and I also I also sing backup on um, sort of any songs that have female backup vocals. Oh, wow. I am singing on. So uh, it was really fun. It's this the album is called Album. <laughs> um, so but yeah, if you search Joe Iconis on any streaming platform or anything, uh, you'll find it. And it was really fun. I love I love people to listen. Oh, that's so cool. So cool. That's fantastic. Oh. Yeah. Fun project. <laughs> and really good songs. So <laughs> I gotta check that out. And where can people find you online? The best place to find me is probably on Instagram. I'm at Gimbalator, G-I-M-B-A-L-A-T-O-R. That's fun. Yeah, it's just fun, <laughs> fun pics. Oh, and you can follow my dog's Instagram account too. It's linked in, in my bio. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. um, yes, yes, please. I meant to tell you earlier, I have three dogs. So I, oh. I share the love of uh, dogs that you have. Yes. <laughs> Well, and everyone, you can follow us on social media. Um, we are Parenthood Pals on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And you can find all of our info on parenthoodpals.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may God bless and keep you always. And may your wishes all come true.